exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 30. And by the grace of God, we're going to finish chapter 5 at the end of today. While you're turning, let me remind you of where we're at in the story of John's gospel. At the beginning of this chapter, we saw Jesus heal a man who had been disabled for 38 years. And at the word of Jesus, he immediately got up, took his mat that he was laying on and walked home. The problem comes in verse 9 when John tells us that this day was the Sabbath. When the Pharisees heard about what had happened, they didn't care that this man had been healed. They didn't care about the works of God in their midst. All they cared about were their man-made rules about the Sabbath. You see, in Israel, it was illegal to break the Sabbath, and especially by carrying one object from one place to another, and the punishment was death. So the Pharisees confront Jesus on his crime in verse 17, and it says in verse 17 that Jesus answered them. That phrase may not mean much to us, but the one word answered is very unusual because the only other time this phrase is used within the Greek language is in the context of a trial. The only time a person would answer someone in this way was during a courtroom defense. Those living in the first century who would read John's gospel would read verse 17 and think, oh, Jesus is giving a legal defense. And he very much is. Jesus is out to defend his reputation and prove that he did not, in fact, break the Sabbath. But how does Jesus defend himself? How does he answer the Pharisees? He doesn't criticize the Pharisees' legalism, even though he could have. What does it say in verse 17? He answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And the Pharisees understood perfectly that in that statement, Jesus was making himself out to be equal with God. And if breaking the Sabbath was bad enough, now he was committing blasphemy by claiming to be one with God. They want him dead. And what's absolutely amazing is that Jesus does not correct their understanding. He doesn't say, you've misunderstood me. If Jesus was just some philosopher or some good teacher or some prophet, this was his opportunity to set the record straight and let everyone know that he was only a man. But that's not what he does. At every turn in this chapter, Jesus claims to be one with God the Father. Two weeks ago, we saw he claimed to be the source of all life, spiritual and physical. He tells us that he's going to raise the dead and judge the world. Something an ancient Israelite would say, only God gives life. Only God is going to judge. And Jesus claims to do both in this passage. But let me tell you, any crazy person can make these kinds of claims. Talk is cheap. But at some point, you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is. And, and Jesus, someone may ask him, can you back up what you're saying? And just like in a court trial, Jesus is going to present his evidence for his claim. He's going to call three witnesses to stand to the stand who are going to offer overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. So with that being said, let's pray and then we'll dive in to this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, the Pharisees searched the scriptures because they thought that in them they had eternal life. As we search the scriptures this morning, help us to find what they were looking for. Help us by the power of your spirit to understand the word before us. Without your help, we're going to end up just like the Pharisees. So we beg you, guide us, help us, comfort us, give us understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
World-renowned atheist Richard Dawkins once said, What's going to happen when I die? If I met God in the unlikely event after I died, I think the first thing I would say is, well, which one are you? Are you Zeus? Are you Thor? Are you Baal? Are you Mithrash? Are you Yahweh? Which God are you? And why did you take such great pains to conceal yourself to hide away from us? How would you respond to someone like Dr. Dawkins? You'll probably never meet the man, but we're living in an increasingly atheistic and non-Christian country. The days are long gone when we can assume that everyone around us believed the Bible or even believed in God. So how can we justify devoting our time and our money and our energy to an outdated cause like Christianity? How can we continue to arrogantly say not only that our faith is true, but it is the only truth? I know most, if not all of us, feel the pressure that comes from those questions. When John 5, we get overwhelmingly overwhelming evidence that our faith is not in vain. You have to have faith to be a Christian. Don't misunderstand me. You have to trust in things that you don't see to be a Christian. But the faith that we have in Jesus is not a blind faith without reason. That faith isn't the faith that says to question nothing and to blindly follow or else. We have a Messiah who says to all the world, see the works I do, see the signs that I perform. We have a Jesus who today presents witnesses to us so that we can know that he can be trusted. And if you came in here and you're not sure about this whole Christian thing, this is the sermon for you. Listen, pay attention because Jesus is going to make his case. If you're a Christian and you want to share your faith with others, but you don't feel like you can really confidently share it, this sermon is for you. This passage is for you. If you're a Christian in here and maybe your, your faith feels rocky, and, and you've been told all your life this is true, but you're just not really sure why, this sermon is for you. My prayer this morning is that the overwhelming evidence that Jesus offers would cause everyone in this room to believe, some for the first time, others to increase your faith. Because in John 5, verses 30 through 47, Jesus is going to present three witnesses who testified to his identity. Three witnesses who testified to his identity. First, Jesus is going to present John the Baptist who testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God in verses 30 through 35. Secondly, Jesus is going to present his Father who testified that Jesus is the Son of God in verses 36 through 38. Finally, Jesus will present the Scriptures who testified that Jesus is the Messiah of God in verses 39 through 47. So let's start with the first witness that Jesus presents, John the Baptist. Look with me to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In this verse, Jesus reaffirms that he is one with the Father. Because Jesus is true God of true God, Jesus can do nothing independently of his Father. Everything Jesus does is dependent on God and in agreement with God. The Father, Son, and Spirit when they act, act with one will and one purpose because they are one being and one God. But to be clear, there are real distinctions between the persons of the Trinity. For instance, the Father did not take on flesh. The Father was not born on Christmas Day. Only the Son was born. And when Jesus did that, he did not leave behind his godness in heaven. He didn't cease being God. 
When Jesus came to the earth, he took on a second nature, a human nature. And now because Jesus was truly man, he was subject to all the limitations that humans are subject to. In Jesus, we see the creator of water become thirsty. The one who made Mercury and Venus became a fetus. And at the cross, we're going to see the author of life die. Jesus was made like us in every way, except without sin. He was truly tempted because he had a human nature and a human will. But he never acted upon his human will. He always submitted to the will of God the Father. The night before Jesus was crucified, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is what he prayed. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Have you ever wondered why Jesus prayed this prayer? If if Jesus is God, who is he talking to? And if he's God, why does he have a different will than the Father? And this is what I'll say. The Bible only makes sense if you understand the Trinity. There's no other way I can find to interpret these verses. But the Trinity makes it clear as day. Jesus has a human will and a divine will. And in his human will, he has no desire to be whipped and ridiculed and nailed to a cross. But despite those real desires, Jesus submits to the Father and goes to the cross. Jesus was truly the perfect man, always living in obedience to the Father. We live in a society where everyone is absolutely adamant about their rights and getting what they deserve and fulfilling their own desires. But when Jesus came, he abandoned his desires in a very real way. He submitted to the Father in service of the Father. We would do well to imitate his example. Abandon your will, abandon your rights, abandon your desires, and seek to submit to the Father. But hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is once again claiming to be equal with God in verse 30. So the question is, why should we take your word for it? And the answer is in verses 31 through 32. Look with me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus once again uses legal language. In the Jewish court of law, you needed two or three witnesses to verify anything. You're not allowed to take anyone's word for it. So Jesus is not saying here that his word cannot be trusted unless someone else confirms it. But he's saying in the context of a courtroom trial, he's using legal language. And he says, I have witnesses that verify what I'm saying. And so then Jesus presents his first witness, John the Baptist in verse 33. He said, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. If you remember all the way back in chapter 1, the Pharisees sent messengers to John the Baptist to ask him if he was the Messiah. Before John the Baptist, there was 400 years without prophets. 400 years of silence in which no prophet spoke, in which God did not communicate directly with his people. So when John the Baptist shows up and he starts preaching, the entire nation of Israel was filled with excitement because everyone thought this could be the guy, the prophet, the Messiah. And John the Baptist was a great man, so great that even Jesus would say of John, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. It seems like the Pharisees were even fans and followers and believers in John's message, at least for a little while. But remember John's message. He said that someone was coming after him who was greater. 
And then when Jesus shows up at the scene, what does John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, there were countless descriptions of animals being sacrificed for the sins of another. But those sacrifices were never enough. At best, they would only cover the sins of one nation, Israel, and they would only last for a year or so. But the sins were never fully taken away. They were only covered. There was always another sacrifice needed. And then John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Testament, points to Jesus and he says, here's the one who will die for the sin of not just Israel, but the whole world. And he will take our sin away. And Jesus declares to us that what John has said is true. Amen, somebody. That's the message of John. Truly, truly, John testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he has borne witness to the truth. But Jesus is quick to clarify. Jesus did not receive his mission from John the Baptist. Look with me to verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember who Jesus is talking to in this moment. He's talking to his accusers. He's preaching to those who are seeking to kill him. Why is he saying these things? Verse 34 tells us, so that they may be saved. There is no more compassionate Savior than the Lord God Almighty. All day long he has his hands out to receive guilty sinners. And here Jesus is pleading with his enemies to believe in him and to receive forgiveness, to come to the light. And many of those Jesus is preaching to will probably have a direct hand in his crucifixion. But this is love, not that we first love God, but that he loved us. When did Jesus die for us? While we were still sinners, while we were his enemies. Mankind is not neutral towards God. Mankind is enemies with God. Think about how Jesus always perfectly obeyed. He always submitted to the Father, right? He is our great example in that sense. And now think about your own life. Has there ever been... A year, month, or even day where you perfectly submitted to God the Father. Do you perfectly submit to the will of the Father? No, we all like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us turning to our own ways. In our rebellion, we have become enemies with God. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who dies for his enemies. And not only was Jesus pleading with the Pharisees in this passage, but he's also pleading with those listening today. He's listening to those today. If you listen to John's testimony and believe in the Lamb of God, you will be saved. Trust Him. Embrace Him. Believe in Him and be saved this day. John the Baptist was a great man, but he was only a witness to the greatest man. Remember in chapter 1, John was not the light, but he did testify of the light of the world. He's described in verse 35 as a burning and shining lamp. Remember that while John was a lamp, the light of the brightest lamp on earth cannot compare to the light of the sun. And here Jesus is appealing to the Pharisees. He's saying, you saw how great John's witness was. You believed for a time. Believe again. Trust him when he testified that I am the Lamb of God and be saved. 
But John is not the only witness Jesus has to present. He's not even the greatest witness. Because not only did John the Baptist testify that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the Father also testified that Jesus was the Son of God. Look with me to verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John was an impressive witness. But Jesus tells us John is nothing compared to his next witness, God Almighty. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, every time Jesus did some supernatural deed, it was God the Father who gave him that work. It was God the Father speaking through the works of Jesus, this is my son. Listen to his message. When Jesus performed a sign, the miracles he did were so instantaneous, so complete, so marvelous, that no one in that day doubted the authenticity of his miracles. They were so public and so impossible to explain away that even Jesus' enemies did not deny that Jesus' miracles were real. All the Pharisees could say about Jesus' miracles were that they were performed by demons or performed on the Sabbath. They never denied that the miracles had occurred. Orthodox Jews today believe in a collection of writings called the Talmud. It's a really interesting writing, and it was not written very long after Jesus had walked this earth. And in the Talmud, it actually references Jesus. The Talmud does not deny his miraculous abilities. They simply describe Jesus as a magician. Jesus' miracles were undeniable, so much so that even Nicodemus A Pharisee came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Every sign that Jesus performs in this book is God saying to you and to me, this is my son. Believe his message. But you may be wondering, if Jesus' miracles were so undeniable, why did the people of his day not believe? Thankfully, Jesus answers that question. Look with me to verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. About once a month, the pastors and the Adirondacks get together for a meeting and we sing and we pray and we have fellowship and usually one of the pastors will teach and it's a great time of fellowship and get to know the pastors from the other churches around here. Imagine if I went to the next one of these meetings and I stood up and said, none of you know God. You don't know his form. You don't know his mind. You don't know his will. None of you are even believers. Jesus is not speaking to drunkards and prostitutes. He's speaking to the teachers of Israel dedicated decades of their lives to teaching the word. They were the holy men of their day. And Jesus said, you don't know God at all. The reason the Pharisees did not believe is because they don't know God. This is a harsh statement. You don't know God. You haven't seen him. You don't know what his voice sounds like. You don't know what his mind is like because his word does not abide in you. And the reason Jesus knows this, he tells us at the end of verse 38, he says, the reason you don't know God and the reason I know you don't know God is you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. Look, there are a lot of kind 
polite, wonderful religious people who believe in a God, believe in some kind of religious system, but if they don't believe in Jesus, they do not know the true God of the universe. Whoever does not honor the Son doesn't honor the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. I'm not saying this week in and week out because I want to offend you or make everyone mad. I'm telling you, this is the truth. The salvation of all those around us and in the world clings to this truth. It's a hard saying, I know. I realize how offensive this is. But listen, to reject that Jesus is God is to reject what God the Father has said about His Son. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Son of God is calling God a liar. That's the seriousness of these accusations. The Father has testified, He's spoken to us, that Jesus is the Son of God. And no one's word is more trustworthy, more reliable, more beyond a reasonable doubt than the word of God the Father. But of course, some of you may be sitting here and saying, but I didn't hear John the Baptist preach. I've never seen the miracles of Jesus. And let me say two things. First, yes, you did through the gospel of John and what has been written. But secondly, there is one final witness who you can still hear from this very day. When Jesus calls his final witness, this is who he calls. He calls the scriptures that testify that Jesus is the Messiah of God. Look with me to verses 39 through 42. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Stop right there. These men had dedicated decades of their lives to studying the scripture, and Jesus tells them, they don't know the first thing about the scripture which they study. The Pharisees were right in thinking that the scriptures held the key to eternal life, but they were never able to take hold of that key. They thought that good works and holy living and obeying Torah would lead them to eternal life, but that's completely missing the point. These Pharisees were so convinced that they were righteous, they had no interest in someone who could forgive them. They were so sick, but they didn't realize their own sickness. That when the great physician shows up, they have no need of a doctor. They dedicated their lives to the scriptures, but they didn't listen to what it was telling them. They heard the words of John the Baptist. They saw the miracles of Jesus. They had the witness of holy scripture. They had all the evidence they needed and more to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So why didn't they come to Jesus? Verse 40 says that they didn't come because they refused to. The issue with the Pharisees was not a lack of evidence. It was a lack of will. Remember John 3, what it said in verses 19 through 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The issue with the world is not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of will. And here the Pharisees won't come to the light. Why not? Look with me to verses 41 through 47. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In these verses, Jesus is comparing himself to the Pharisees. He's saying, I'm not like you. You care about the approval of men. I don't. I don't care about the glory that men give. I care about the glory I get from my father. All you care about is the glory that you get from other people who are like you. If Jesus had come to the earth as the son of a rabbi or as a king or as a priest rather than the son of a carpenter, the Pharisees would have probably accepted him. If Jesus had come and climbed the ladder and patiently worked to earn the approval of the religious rulers, they probably would have believed him. They respected men who came in their own name, but they didn't respect the Messiah who came in the name of God. And then Jesus goes for the knockout punch. There was no one these men held in higher regard than Moses. Moses was the greatest prophet ever to them. The way we talk about George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr., this is how they spoke of Moses. And Jesus says, you think you love Moses. You think you respect Moses. But if he were here right now, he would be accusing you. He'd be telling you to believe in me because that's what his writings were about. But you may be thinking the same thing these Pharisees were thinking. Where did Moses write about Jesus exactly? Was, where in Genesis? Where in Deuteronomy? Definitely not Leviticus, right? What, where was Moses writing about Jesus? But if you look at the big storyline, the grand picture of what Moses was writing about, Jesus is everywhere. We read those verses from Genesis 3 when God promised to send an offspring of Eve who would defeat Satan. And that's about Jesus. In Deuteronomy, God promised that he would send a prophet greater than Moses who would speak the very words of God. And that's about Jesus. All of the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus that point towards the ultimate sacrifice. That's about Jesus. The Old Testament doesn't use Jesus' name directly but it does use his title, Messiah. He is the promised Christ of the Old Testament and it all points to him. Now this isn't to say that every verse is secretly about Jesus, that Jesus is under every single rock, that he is the secret meaning behind every single passage. This is to say the grand storyline of the Bible, the movement, the history of the Bible is all moving in one direction towards a savior who will save his people. The entire story of the Bible points to Jesus. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And she wrote in the Jesus Storybook Bible this. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. 
He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the, uh, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. End quote. Truly, truly, I say to you, the scriptures testify that Jesus is the Messiah of God. Amen. Amen. My prayer this morning was that the overwhelming evidence that Jesus offers would cause everyone in this room to believe, some for the first time, and others to increase their faith. Because in John 5, we saw Jesus present three witnesses. We saw John the Baptist, who testified that Jesus was the Lamb of God. We saw the Father, who testified that Jesus was the Son of God. And we see the Scriptures, who still testify that Jesus is the Messiah of God. So how can we as Christians continue to arrogantly claim that Jesus is the only way? How can we have any confidence that we're any more right than the thousands of other religions out there? Why follow Jesus at all? What makes our faith true? How can we have any confidence in this book, in this story? Well, I have three pastoral charges for you. Three ways that we can apply the truths that we found in John 5 to our lives and have confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. First pastoral charge, search the scriptures to find life in Jesus. Search the scriptures to find life in Jesus. Jesus told us that the reason the Pharisees didn't believe in him was because they didn't have God's word abiding in them. So, have you, so, you, uh, so you have to go to the Bible and let God's word abide in you. So let me ask you, are you struggling with secret sin? Do you wrestle with fear and doubt and anxiety? Let me ask you, what are you abiding in? What are you consuming? What do you set your mind upon? If you abide in the things of this world, then you'll be like an infant lost at sea, thrown back and forth by the ways. But if you dedicate yourselves to the scripture, you can find life. This has to be an entire life transformation. I'm not saying legalistically you have to read three hours a day. I'm saying, what are you consuming? What is your mind focused on? If someone eats McDonald's morning, lunch, and dinner, and then they walk for 10 minutes a day, are they going to get healthy? No. If you consume television and news and anxiety and gossip, and then you read one verse a day, and try, I mean, that is going to lead to disaster. But abiding in God's word will help you to persevere. But remember, the point of abiding in God's word is not just to read the Bible, to check it off your list, to do your daily religious duty. But the point is to find Jesus, not to get more religious. In the words of preacher Matt Chandler, if you're a church person and not a Jesus person, my heart hurts for you. Being a church person and not a Jesus person is like being engaged and never getting married. It's miserable. Don't be a church person. Go to the scriptures and see how it all connects back to Jesus. Listen, you you can go to Bible college. You can go to seminary and dedicate your life to the church. But if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. You can take a vow of silence and dedicate every moment of the rest of your life to silent prayer. But if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. You can sell everything you have to the poor, move to a foreign land to be a missionary, and give your life for the faith. But if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. All of Scripture, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is about Jesus. From Leviticus to Lamentations, from Malachi to Matthew, from Genesis to John's Revelation, it is all testifying that Jesus is the Messiah of God. Amen? Amen. So search the Scriptures to find Jesus. And you may ask, how do I do that? One way, come to Sunday school. Here's why I say that. We've been going through the Old Testament just book by book. 
And my goal and every time we go through one of those books is to say, this is how this book fits into the grand story. This is how this book turns to Jesus. And I know we get to some of those books in the Old Testament that have funny names that we can never remember. And they're hard to read and they're difficult. But let me tell you, it's so, so worth it because every book in the Old Testament points to Jesus. I'll be honest, it takes work to understand some of these older books, but it's so worth it. First time I read Leviticus, I wanted to stab my eyes out. I was so bored and confused. But after, let me tell you, after I taught through Leviticus in our Sunday school class, it's one of my favorite books of all of Scripture because it's all pointing to Jesus and His sacrifice. I'll tell you, it takes work, it's hard, but it's worth it. So that's the charge. Search the Scriptures to find life in Jesus. Second pastoral charge. Seek God's approval over man's. Seek God's approval over man's. At this point in the story, John the Baptist was long forgotten. And some scholars think that at this point in John's gospel, John the Baptist had probably been executed already. All the attention is on Jesus, and it seems that everybody has forgotten about John the Baptist. But there was at least one person who did not forget, his master, Lord Jesus. If nobody else remembered John, his Savior did. You may not be appreciated by anyone. The world may hate you and despise you. It may seem like all your work is for nothing, but God remembers those who are his. The Lord knows his people. He knows their tears. He knows their trials. Christian, he has your name written on the palms of his hands. He notices all you do, and so it doesn't matter what the world thinks as long as you seek the Lord's approval. Don't make the mistake of the Pharisees by seeking the approval of men. Seek God's approval first because he never forgets those who are his. So whether you've been the treasurer for a long time and it's a thankless job, the Lord sees, Lois. Whether you've been serving as a deacon and just trying to keep this church alive and you're here today and it's years of work and what do I have to show? The Lord sees your work. He sees you. He knows. He remembers those who are his. Third pastoral charge. Marvel at the evidence. Marvel at the evidence. Jesus said in verse 20 that he performed his signs and his wonders so that we may marvel. He's given us three impressive witnesses that all testify that Jesus is who he said he is. He didn't owe us any of those miracles or wonders. He didn't owe us the scriptures. But as an act of grace, he's shown these things to us so that we may marvel. God has sent the prophets. He sent his word. He sent his son. He has spoken through all three. So no atheist on the day of judgment will be able to shake their fist at God and say, why did you hide yourself? He'll say to them, I was everywhere. In all of creation that shouts at you, day and night, the heavens declare the glory of God. And in the clarity of the scripture, in the person of my son, I was absolutely clear about who I am and what you were to do. On the day of judgment, no one will be able to say to God, where was the evidence? The issue is a lack of will. And that's why I urge you now, everyone here, come to the light. Don't refuse to come to Jesus. Come out of the darkness. Repent of your sin and trust in the light of the world. Because if you hear anything this morning, hear this. Jesus came to this world and was made human like us in every way without sin. And he submitted to the will of God and did what was right in every way that you have failed. And he's the only man who has ever earned his way to heaven. But instead of living life eternal, he drank our hell on the cross. He suffered and died the punishment we deserved. 
He was murdered as a substitute for sinners like you and I so the wrath of God could be satisfied in Jesus. But he did not just die. He also rose from the grave, proving to the world that he is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah of God. And now all who turn from their sin and who have faith and love in Jesus will be saved through his sacrifice. The evidence has been laid before you. So trust in Jesus. Have confidence in Jesus. Be assured that Jesus is the Son of God and that his message is true. Amen and amen, church. So on that note, if you're able, let's stand and sing about trust in Jesus. Let's stand and sing number 257, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.